Welcome to the Women in Sport and Exercise Academic Network podcast. I am your host, Dr. Jackie Forsyth, and also co-founder of the network. The purpose of the Women in Sport and Exercise Academic Network is to grow, strengthen, and promote research on women in sport and exercise with the ultimate goal of optimizing women's athletic success and their participation. I had the pleasure of talking to Dr. Emma Ross, who formerly worked as the Head of Physiology at the English Institute of Sport. She also led the Female Athlete Programme there, which aimed to empower coaches, athletes and sports practitioners to better understand the exercising female. Emma is now co-founder of The Well HQ, where she is continuing her mission to educate and empower women in sport. Her company covers topics on the menstrual cycle, breast health, pelvic floor health, and what it takes for girls and women to thrive in sport, in health, and in life. In this podcast, we talked about the Smart Air campaign at the English Institute of Sport, and what the picture is like now in terms of Olympic women's medals. We also talked about any objections she had come across in her work, her specialism at the well, best practices, and her career tips. So welcome, Emma, to our podcast for the Women in Sport and Exercise Academic Network. Thank you. Hi, Jackie. Lovely to have you here. I was just reading a bit about what you've said. In fact, listening to a podcast about what you said about the Smarter campaign as part of the English Institute of Sport and how that was almost started from the statistics that came back from Rio, where women were not as represented in Great Britain compared to other nations. Do you think then the situation has changed since then? How has the environment moved on and in what way? So it's a good time to ask because obviously we've just had Tokyo Olympics, Paralympics is still going on. But actually that the data that really initiated the Smart Her work at the EIS was based on Olympic medal data from Rio and the Paralympics weren't actually as represented, uh, sort of the same. They were far more equal in terms of males and females and their successes. So the Rio data showed that when we looked at all of our medal winners, gold, silver, bronze, 35% of them were female. And that was much lower as a proportion of, of the whole medal tally than other countries that we would compare ourselves to, you know, top half of the medal table, who were achieving a 50-50 split of medal success from female and male athletes, um, and sometimes slightly more. For example, in the States, up to 60% of their medals were brought home by females. And so it led the UK high performance system to ask, oh, is there anything we're doing wrong in terms of supporting our female athletes? Is there anything more we could do? And why is this happening? And and those who have heard me talk about it before will know that I always say the answer isn't straightforward and, and really complex. And the more I've worked in this space and thought about it and worked across the spectrum of participation to podium, we know that there are points across that where we can improve how we support and engage and encourage and retain females in sport. But as I was working at the high performance end, that's where you know my perspective was. And that's why we started the Smart Her campaign, which was really at the beginning to open up the conversation to ask those questions because no one had actually really asked them before. No one had said to coaches or to practitioners, are you considering that your athletes are females as well as athletes? Because I think actually on reflection, 
what the female athletes had often tried to not mention that because their strive for equality in terms of pay, in terms of media coverage, in terms of access to coaching and facilities and the support teams that, you know, were existing in the IS, they had been striving so hard to achieve equality in that compared to their male counterparts. They almost didn't want to bring attention to the fact that they were, in fact, a different, you know, different human uh, as a woman than than the men. They kind of were trying to say, you know, we deserve the same. And actually, the question we were asking was that equality here doesn't mean giving you the same. It means giving you the same opportunity to fulfill your potential. And actually, if we don't acknowledge that you're, you're female and your physiology is different from that of a male, how you think and behave might be different from that of a male. And if we don't acknowledge that, then we're actually not giving female athletes an equal opportunity to fulfill their potential. So we started with that question. And as you can imagine, that created lots of discussion. And then off the back of that, we delivered lots of education around, OK, what might be different? And we know that there's no straightforward binary answer to females are like this and males are like this, particularly in sport. But we do know, you know, we do know that the physiology, for example, is different. We do know that the hormonal profile of males and females is different. So we started that education. And at the time, because we'd related it to data from Rio, the powers that be were saying to me, OK, so what can we expect in Tokyo? What medal, you know, what medals, more medals can we expect in Tokyo? And I, I kind of said, well, I don't think it works like that, right? I don't think, you know, when we talk about something, let's say like mental health, I don't think we can say two years after we start that conversation that will translate into performance. We're creating an environment which acknowledges something in the case of mental health. It, it acknowledges that we need to create psychologically safe environments where people can thrive mentally. With the female athlete stuff, it acknowledges that we need to create environments where females are acknowledged, supported celebrated and can thrive as females and actually we've just come out of Tokyo and the split was roughly the same as it was in Rio so our females won 38 percent of our medals so we haven't moved the needle on on outcomes if you like in terms of high performance medal success but what I I feel we have and this is less tangible is we've definitely moved the needle on people going oh okay so I need to know more about a female body how female physiology works and whether that's important for me as a coach or a practitioner and then what to do about it we've raised awareness of the fact that talking about menstrual cycle and menstrual health is not just important to optimize performance but you know it's going to overcome some of this prevalence of red s and athletes who are having to stop their sport because their bone health is compromised and they actually don't don't progress because of injury and illness so we've definitely moved the needle on that and that for me is the outcome that I was looking for. OK, thanks for that. Um, you mentioned participation to podium. And I know you've worked with a range of athletes from more recreational to high performance level. I know the pathway is really important, but which would you say would be the most important to get in there and talk about women's issues? Would it be at that grassroots level or would it be more at the high performance level, do you think? I mean, I think one of my reflections coming out of elite sport was that everyone was sort of at the same level. Everyone was sort of working from a blank page. And so the talks and the education I was giving to Olympic level coaches or athletes was the same that I was giving to high school level coaches and athletes because no one knew about the menstrual cycle. No one knew about pelvic health or how to find the right sports bra. But there is absolutely, I think, a sweet spot if we're going to change 
all of this for generations to come. And that is in grassroots participation and early on in the pathway, because for me, that's where we're losing girls for a start. And if we don't have a wide enough base of this pyramid, no matter what we do, the top is never going to be as successful because it doesn't have this supporting base. And we know we lose girls from sport at a much higher rate than we lose boys. And we know, and and this is not necessarily published evidence, but from my conversations with people who have worked in pathways, so in, in transitioning girls from participation through to a high performance level, that we lose girls from that because they don't see enough role models in sport, in head coaching, in performance director positions, and and they don't see it as a long-term career or their health might be compromised throughout that journey. So we know we're losing, you know, we've got an attrition all the way through. And so I absolutely think if we can target that participation end of the pathway, we can educate coaches, we can educate PE teachers, we can educate the girls themselves and the parents about, you know, really good female health, and what it takes for females to thrive in a sporting environment and what that looks like, then we're going to retain more. That base of that pyramid becomes really rich with engaged girls who love sport and love moving. And therefore, those who choose to and can transition up to the the higher levels will be, there'll be more of them and they'll be healthier and happier and more likely to succeed. And through all this work and your work with the well and also the English Institute of Sport, have you come across anybody who's really objected? So really somebody who said, you know what, this is not for me, Emma. I don't want this. It's not important for my women. And yes. how, have you, what, how, <laughs> how have you dealt with that? Um, I, I have to say that most people have been super positive really well intentioned they might have said oh gosh this feels a bit uncomfortable coaches in particular are so good at what they do they might have done the sport for a long time they might have coached the sport for a long time and in terms of their skill in terms and and craft in terms of coaching they're amazing and suddenly you're showing them this this next level of of stuff that they're like oh not only do I not know it but no one's ever taught me it (laughs) and I'm not comfortable in it but usually the intentions are really good in, in that they want to step into that space and know what they need to know. But yes, we've we've had people object and those people have come from different demographics. We've got we've had perhaps coaches who have said, I've coached women for, you know, 30 years and, and only once has any woman ever said to me, you know, her her menstrual cycle is troubling her. So obviously it's not a problem in my sport. And we're like, no, I think that means it's not a, it's a, it is a problem because we know that the prevalence of, you know, menstrual cycle symptoms and it getting in the way of sport is great. And if no one's mentioning it to you, that's the problem. So it's it's that inability to see or, or to know what you don't know. So we've had objections there. I've never heard of this. So why why would it be a problem? We've had objections from perhaps female athletes who say, don't come in here talking about period pain and getting my bra wrong or stress incontinence that everyone knows is happening because that's considered the fragile and weak bit of being female. And we don't want that. And again, our, our challenge back or our sort of supportive approach to that is this is about opportunity. And it's just about, you know, the teams that I used to work with at the EIS who were responsible for going into sports and understanding other areas of athlete health might go in and say, what is the most prevalent injury in your sport? You know, is it shoulder? Is it knee? And what can we do about it? And no one said, oh, no, don't highlight the injuries we're getting. They said, oh, amazing, because then we can create a programme, which means that we get less of those injuries. And that's all we're doing here. But actually, there were some reservations about going in and highlighting these. So so those required a really 
it's it's just not it's not okay to go in and say we know this data we know this happens in our bodies so let's talk about it because actually it's it's sensitive information and we need to frame it in a really positive way so yes we have had some objections um we have had some reservations but ultimately we have always framed this as an opportunity an opportunity to do better and to create environments where athletes do better and it is, will be really slow to change because performance has always been at the forefront of sport. But trying to create a conversation that health and, you know, happiness and feeling supported and nurtured is what will underpin high performance, not this kind of hard graft, no compromise attitude. And, and this this type of work fits into that. So hopefully we've won most people around. Not everyone. But most people. Thanks for that. That's answered a couple of questions that I was going to ask you. So that's great because, yeah, objections can come from both the coaches and from the athletes themselves when they're a bit apprehensive about revealing the weakness. But you've said how that can become an opportunity and a positive thing, which is great. Um, you mentioned a few topics. So you mentioned menstrual cycle, breast health, pelvic floor. And I know you cover those topics as part of your work with the Well HQ in terms of courses and consultancy webinars things like that which is your particular specialism so we do cover a really wide range of topics and i have this you know a bit like a kid in a toy shop just i love exploring all of them but absolutely i i have colleagues who are much more expert in things like pelvic health so my co-founder baz moffitt in pelvic health our other co-founder uh, is a gp dr bella smith much more in the kind of gynae health uh, and dysfunction, if you like, ill health part of our work. I've really loved and developed, I guess, expertise in menstrual health and really understanding the menstrual cycle as a kind of physiological or biological process that we we need to understand. And, and can we tap in to not just cope with the challenges it throws at us, but capitalise on on the physiology it presents because it kind of doesn't make sense to me as a sports physiologist that we we do a lot to capitalize on our physiology whether it's you know priming or warming up or cooling down or you know training adaptation and trying to influence different hormonal and biochemical pathways yet we've got this huge like part of our physiology as females that really changes significantly you know as we know over across a month and we've kind of just ignored it so I've really been interested over time in how we can capitalise on that as well as cope with it. And through my work with um, the University of Portsmouth Breast Health Research Group, I've developed, you know, not as much expertise as they have, but a real interest in, in breast support in sport. Because I think as someone who's done sport all my life as a female and know, and knowing how, you know, I reflected and it, and it took me, you know, 20 years and, and working with the research group to go, oh, yeah, that's what was happening. When I started marathon running back in my 20s, I bought so many different trainers to try and get the right fit. The ones that didn't give me blisters, the ones that, you know, sort of helped support my overpronation in a way. that. And I went to, on different treadmill tests and, you know, I, I invested in that footwear Yet I was wearing these bras that I would have to and I would have to wear blister plasters under the underband because they were rubbing and chafing. And sometimes I had breast pain and I would have to wear two bras. And and I didn't think anything of it as in I didn't strive for a solution 
that I did for my so I really connected with that work and so over time I've also you know really been interested in in understanding just the importance of breast support in sport and in movement and exercise and how that is a real barrier for women even in terms of participation and how we can educate and encourage people just to get the right breast support it seems an easy solution but it's not so that that doesn't become a barrier so I guess for me menstrual health and breast breast health have been my kind of real areas of interest and and I guess also barriers to participation in general because those topics fall into that so why don't women do sport why do they drop out of sport and what is sort of heartbreaking to find and gives you real motivation when you're doing this work is that it is things like fear of leaking whilst you're running it is breast pain it is not being able to cope with menstrual cycle symptoms which feels a bit rubbish because we should be able to help with that. So that kind of barriers to participation has also been an area of real interest for me. Thanks for that. I really liked your example with the running and how much time we spend getting trainers versus how much time we spend investing in good bras. Yeah. Um, Go back to your menstrual cycle bit, though. Have you come across any really good practices that you've seen within teams or within individuals that is going on that you could share with us? I think it's tricky because we're at the very start of our journey and even understanding what good practice might look like. And I think sometimes we're doing good, we're doing practice we think is good. And then we might step back and go, actually, that's not, you know, that's probably not as good as it's going to get, or it might, that might be really great for an individual sport, but really tricky for a team sport. So I think we haven't, you know, we haven't got the blueprint of best practice yet. But for me, the teams that have acknowledged menstrual health and are are moving towards, A, getting their players to track and monitor it, but then doing something useful with that information. So when we first started this work, we came across some sports that did, they said we track our our players' menstrual cycle or we ask our players to track their menstrual cycle. And then when we asked what they did with that information, they couldn't really articulate what they were doing or why it was important. They just they just knew that they kind of should be aware of it. So it's like going the next step and saying, OK, so what are you doing with it? I think where it's been slightly exaggerated, perhaps, and this often comes in the press and it's it's at no fault of the people who are doing the work or uh, the academics who are underpinning that work with research is that, you know, you'll get a headline like, oh, this team are tailoring their training to their menstrual cycle. And, you know, I would really challenge that, A, because it's impossible. And B, we don't know enough to know whether what good practice would look like. I mean, I always give people the information that we know, we know about the menstrual cycle and how, you know, parts of it can be quite advantageous to adaptation to training and other parts not so and so if you can tailor your training in different ways that might help we know that different types of exercise can mitigate symptoms so maybe tailoring your your training and what you're doing could be also helping alleviate some symptoms so we do know some of that stuff but we we don't really know what an amazing training schedule would look like if we factored in the menstrual cycle partly because every woman's menstrual cycle is different and so some people, you know, oh, I'm very motivated to train here and, you know, I, I could definitely do more strength work or resistance work here. But other people feel flat and lethargic. And so it's really hard to know what best practice looks like. But the fact that we've got either individuals or teams or practitioners or coaches saying, let's track your cycle and let's just as a coach and a, an athlete understand it and understand your experience of it and then work with what we find and what we see That for me is really, really powerful because it means that you're just acknowledging it and working around it. 
Uh, and don't feel pressured into thinking there's a there's the a golden you know rule way of doing things. Okay, thanks. For that. I want to just move on to your career really, and just to give some tips, I suppose, to listeners from how you've gone from academia, and then you got this coveted job at the English Institute of Sport, which a lot of people really want, and then you've moved from that into setting up your own business. Have you got any tips and tricks for people how to do that? Oh, gosh, if I knew, uh, I, I don't know how I did it. So, <laughs> so I don't know how it happened. Um, no, I I think I, I've done a few talks at uh, graduation ceremonies, you know, online this year. And I've had to think about, you know, what advice I would give people. And I think fundamentally, it's understanding yourself and your values and what's important to you. And then taking opportunities that really match that so to kind of decode that sort of vague approach is there were bits of academia that I loved and there were bits that I didn't like so much and then opportunity you know an opportunity arose to go and work in applied sport and they really kind of aligned with the bits of my you know the job that I loved you know I loved um, helping people develop I loved really working with individuals and making them better and fulfill their potential at university I loved translating research into practice I was a researcher but actually my what I really liked was saying okay now we've found that out who can I tell are there runners out there that need to know this or are there fitness trainers who need to know this so that kind of felt like when the job came up at the EIS that fitted and I, I remember that transition very well because I hadn't really looked you know looked at that role and thought I'll do that and it was only through some conversations with people um, in the EIS at the time who said I think you could do it and I was like oh really I I hadn't thought of it so for me without their nudge I wouldn't have so I think it's really important to a build a network of people outside of your area because those are the people that might say hey there's something going over here in my world I think you'd be great for it and it might open your eyes to different things but then also being really brave to try it because it, it it was a, a whole new world to me you know moving from academia into high performance sport I didn't I remember at the beginning in the first few weeks I didn't understand what anyone was saying you know it was it was a terminology and a vocabulary and I just I was like I it was so exhausting but you know I, I guess it's the same when you go and live in a foreign country and learn the language I you just have to be in it and be uncomfortable in it and and just listen and absorb and be brave enough to do that. And uh, I remember at the time, Steve Ingham, who was my then boss and, and recruited me and was an amazing mentor for me. He he said, you know, no one's ever actually come into this type of role straight from academia. They usually come through a practitioner pathway or and he said, so, I, yeah, I'm not you know, sure that's going to go. And I thought that's a good challenge. For, you know, I, I'll take that as a challenge. And But but it made me think I've got to be brave here. This isn't just going to be an easy transition so I think it's being really aware of the fact that it won't be comfortable or easy but it's really worth doing if it aligns with your values and then this the next transition which was out of the EIS into kind of my own business was the hardest decision to make as you say I was in a job that I really enjoyed in a high performance system which was one of the most successful ones in the world but I again I had started this female athlete work and more and more people were saying wow it would be great if this could be rolled out into schools or into clubs or you know over here we've got this group of hockey coaches and they'd love to hear from from you and 
And in my role at the time at the EIS, I was very aligned to medals and I had to work. And that's where the funding, you know, that has how the funding works. And and so over time, I just felt so passionate about this topic and this subject and about empowering women and empowering coaches and people who work with women. So that became a really important value to me. And and the more I was working just in the elite bubble, the further away I was getting from that, which was I really want to broaden the reach of this work. And so, again, it took a lot of bravery to say, in order to do that, I'm going to have to go out on my own because at the moment there isn't a job to walk into that does this. Uh, and again, I was really fortunate because I had people who I co-founded the well with who had the same passion and interest. And I only knew those from creating a network of, of people outside of my world at the time. So those are kind of consistent themes, really having people to help you on the journey, exploring networks outside of your current bubble and just fostering those relationships. And I've always believed that people will work with you because they want to work with you as a human. And so, you know, building those relationships is really important. And then just being brave and and really accepting. And this is really hard for me that if it fails, that's OK. For me, it's better to try and fail than never to have tried to all a bit cliche. But if it really is important to you, then give it a go. And that one thing Steve really taught me was the art of reflection and say, OK, so what did I learn? Not oh gosh, what went wrong? What did I learn? And then take that forward into your next journey. I think that's just a lovely thing to finish on because that gives us all hope, doesn't it? That, you know, when things go wrong, no, they don't go wrong. We'll just <laughs> we'll just reflect and use it as an opportunity. So thanks ever so much, Emma, for talking to me. You're really eloquent when you talk and you've given us lots of things to think about. We've covered lots of topics, I think haven't we? We is have. Is there anything else you would like to point out? Anything you feel as though you haven't said, you haven't got off your chest, anything else you want to put out there? Oh no, not really. I guess to this community who listens to this podcast is to say, you know, keep keep doing what you're doing. We know that the research gap needs closing, but also making your work accessible to people who want to practice and to who want to actually action it. So it, it is of no use stuck in an academic journal. And I know that's what universities love, they want your publications in very high impact journals, but be the person who's pushing for the impact as well and pushing for the translation. So get it in Runner's World, get it in Women's Health, even if it is also in a in a, a publication, because that's the way people can go. The awareness can be raised because there are so many women and coaches and practitioners who haven't got a clue that this stuff is important still. So keep translating that research into accessible ways that people can digest it. Uh, that would be my wish. And just keep on doing what you're doing because this space is, is so exciting and really rewarding and fulfilling to work in. And I hope everyone else feels that way. So thank you for having me, Jackie. Thanks ever so much. And obviously, don't forget, they can also do podcasts as well as getting yes, their research e- exactly exactly and do connect with us at the well hq uh, we're all on the socials and we've just we're just creating a really nice community of of you know from academics coaches practitioners and athletes themselves and parents of girls and it's a really great place for you to be to to connect with all those people so yeah do look us up and follow us and we'll see you there <laughs> thanks ever so much emma thanks